Good morning, church. It's great to see you again. I'm so grateful you're here. We're still telling everyone Merry Christmas. So Merry Christmas to you, and I hope you've had a sweet few days and enjoyed some rest for your body, some rest for your spirit, and uh, I'm grateful for the worship we've had together. If you've got a Bible with you, uh, would you go ahead and open up to the Gospel of John? And we're going to be in John chapter 1 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you, maybe it accidentally got packed away or something like that, that's okay. Uh, we've got one for you in the pew rack. And if you're going to use that black Bible uh, from the pew rack, you're going to find John chapter 1 on page 941. So John chapter 1 verses 14 through 18 is where we're going to spend our time this morning before we eat and drink together. Uh, do you have a memorable gift? You know, all gifts have memories attached to them, and, and part of the point of these gifts is they all, they all have purpose. There's a reason you give a gift to someone. I remember the year we gave our girls a trampoline, and I don't know if you know this, trampolines don't come pre-assembled. It came in a box with 64,000 separate parts, and... There's no, there's no friend you can ask to help you put together the trampoline. No one's going to help you with that. So I put together the trampoline, uh, started early in the morning, went into the night, uh, lost all the skin on my knuckles, every spring I put on by myself, and there was a goal in mind. The reason I would put the trampoline together, the reason we got it in the first place, is so they could jump on it. And so as soon as that last bolt was tightened up, boom, they jumped on it, and they uh, hopped on the trampoline uh, in the dark until they were frozen solid, and it was great. If I had finished the trampoline, and then they said, oh, we're just going to hang out and watch cartoons, I would have needed time on the trampoline myself uh, to decompress, find my happy place. That might not have been bad, uh, but the gift has a purpose. The purpose is, let's use this. Uh, and the same can be said of the gift of Christ and our salvation in Him. When Christ came to us and took on flesh, He did so with purpose. It's a gift that you and I are meant to use, to enjoy, to benefit from. John's gospel doesn't start like Matthew or Luke's gospel. Matthew and Luke have birth narratives. Matthew takes us to the wise men. Luke takes us to the shepherds. Uh, Mark, he just jumps right into the middle of the earthly ministry of Jesus. But John, he starts a bit different. John gives us not a birth narrative, but he gives us the incarnation. This is what it means that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. And the, the incarnation of Christ is not some neutral event. It's not just one random historical event among many different historical events. Uh, it is this monumental pivot in time that all of human history had built towards and all of human history moves from. This moment in time is a gift from God to us and it comes with a purpose for you and I to enjoy. And so my goal today is simply this. In one little paragraph here in the opening words of the Gospel of John, I want us to see the gifts that come to us from the incarnation of Christ. What does it mean that he took on flesh? How does that impact our life today? What do we do with it? That's the ultimate goal. What, is the, what are the gifts that come from the incarnation, and what's the purpose? What do we do with it? So I want to show you three gifts that come to us from Christ as he took on flesh, 
And I want you to follow along with me as I read John chapter 1, starting in verse 14. John writes, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me because He existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from His fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is Himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed Him. Perhaps these are familiar words to you. Perhaps the opening chapter of John is familiar to you. And so you know its depth, you know its richness, and uh, you know that this one paragraph contains enough meat for us for this one morning together. Uh, it starts with this line in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We can barely comprehend that sentence. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is the Word? Well, we know from verse 1 that the Word is the preexistent divine creator of the universe. And we also know from right here that this Word is also the uncreated Son of God. So when we say, or when John says the Word became flesh, he's saying that the eternal unlimited God became human. And it is essential for our understanding of the gospel and our relationship with Christ that we have as, as good of an understanding as we possibly can of His natures, His divine nature and His human nature. You've heard me say before, and you'll hear me say uh, many more times into the distant future, that Jesus is not the man chosen by God. And Jesus is not the man who became God. And Jesus is not more than a man, but less than a God. And Jesus is not one of many gods. He is very God of God. And in order for our redemption to be accomplished, it is God who was required to take on flesh. When the Word took on flesh, He didn't split His nature so that He was partially God and partially human. In this great mystery... He is fully God, fully human, all at the same time. All the works that He did, His miracles, and the Word that He taught, that is the Word of God, the acts of God. But in His life, He really lived a human life, lived a human existence, really died a human death. He's fully God, He's fully man, and this mysterious and beautiful truth is for our benefit. From the Word taking on flesh... John describes benefits for us, gifts that you and I are to apply to our lives. What are these three gifts from the incarnation of Christ? Well, the first is the gift of glory observed. So the Word took on flesh, and verse 14 tells us we observed His glory. John speaks first person plural, we. He is one among many eyewitnesses, and the church that he writes for is included among those eyewitnesses, we observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father. What are we talking about when we talk about the glory of Jesus? What does it mean to say we observed His glory? Well, glory refers to the splendor, the holiness, the majesty of Jesus. Glory is 
his intrinsic value and worth that elicits praise from us. When we talk about glory, it's that quality that sets him apart and makes him the target of our praise and worship. And in these two verses, verses 14 and 15, John describes three different ways we observe the glory of Christ. If we observed his glory, how do we know? What's the evidence we observed his glory? Well, he tells us, first of all, it's in his person. Verse 14, we observe glory in his person. He is the one and only Son from the Father. So to say he's the one and only Son from the Father is to say there's no one else like Jesus. He's utterly unique, totally separate from everyone else and everything else. He's not one of many prophets. He's not one of many good teachers. He is the one and only Son from the Father. If you have the King James Bible with you this morning, He is the only begotten of the Father. The same word used in John 3, 16. There's no one else like Him. Fully human, fully divine, the one and only Son of God. And so to see Jesus is to see God. The reality of the Father is really in the Son. He's the exact representation, the embodiment, the impress of the fundamental reality of God. What God essentially is, is made manifest in Jesus Christ. He is the one and only God from the Father. When you look at Him, you see glory, glory that He alone possesses. Another way we see His glory is through His purpose. John tells us He's the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That little phrase, full of grace and truth, is very important. How would we know he's full of grace and truth? Well, we wouldn't know that just by looking at him. You don't know a person is full of grace just by looking at them. A person is full of grace because they have given grace. Grace is not a character trait that we hoard. It's a character trait that's given. It's practiced or exercised among people. So to say Jesus is full of grace is to say he has given grace in abundance. And he's done just that. In taking on flesh, we observe glory because here's grace coming to us. Also to say he's full of truth is not just to speak of some static quality, but we know he's full of truth because of what he spoke, what he delivered to us. He gave us the true message of God. It's a message of hope for all those who trust in him. So when we think of his person, we see glory. When we see his purpose to give grace and truth, we see his glory. A third way we observe his glory is through prophecy. And that's why verse 15 is so important. It's this interesting little aside where John says, John testified concerning him and exclaimed, this is the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Now, a quick word of explanation. If you're new to the Bible, it can be a little tricky identifying all the various Johns. Who are the Johns here? Because we have the Gospel of John called that because it's written by a John, and that John now is writing about a John. What's going on? So, real quick word of explanation. Gospel of John, written by John the Apostle. I'll refer to him as that for now, and that'll be helpful to differentiate him. He's John the Apostle. John the Apostle is one of Jesus' 12 disciples, called by Jesus to follow him in his earthly ministry. John the Apostle was um, present at the crucifixion of Christ. He's the disciple whom Jesus spoke to from the cross and said, take care of my mother. Uh, John the Apostle is also the writer of the later epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, also the writer of the book of Revelation, 
the writer here of uh, the Gospel of John. John the Apostle and John the Baptist are two different Johns. John the Baptist didn't write anything that became a part of the canon or the Bible. Uh, to our knowledge, we don't have any written works from John the Baptist. John the Baptist wasn't one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He's a unique prophet of God who proclaimed the coming of the Messiah. So John the Baptist's message is recorded by John the Apostle in verse 15. So the John in verse 15 is John the Baptist. John the Baptist testified concerning Christ and exclaimed, This is the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. So John's role is to prepare people for the coming Messiah. He's just like the long line of prophets that came before him, like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel, all those prophets. The only difference between John the Baptist and these other prophets is that John the Baptist was essentially able to just point to Jesus and say, there he is. That, that's the one. Me and all these guys, this is who we've been talking about. Here he is right here, Jesus of Nazareth. John says, John the Baptist says of Jesus, he's, he ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. But if you remember from Luke's birth narrative, John the Baptist, who also is the cousin of Jesus, was born six months before Jesus. So how can he say he came before me? Well, what he's saying is that he's not just like the rest of us. He is God in the flesh. He's the eternal creator God who has come to accomplish redemption for his people. So these three little reasons are the ways John the apostle builds a case for the glory of Christ. We observed his glory. How'd you observe his glory? Well, because of who he is, his person, his identity. Because of what he did, he's full of grace and truth, gave grace, proclaimed truth. And because of the prophecies told about him, this is the one that all the Old Testament prophets prepared us for, the one that God promised in the days of old. So when you and I think of glory, we think about it primarily perhaps from a cultural standpoint. Glory belongs to people who achieve much, who ascend the mountaintop, who reach the top of their field, their sport, whatever it is. Those are the people in culture who get glory. But the glory of Jesus is a glory of a different kind. Jesus doesn't ascend to glory. Jesus descended to glory. The one and only Son from the Father took on flesh. That's a descent. That's not an upgrade. He condescended to us. He lowered himself to us. The one and only Son from the Father took on flesh, and then he was executed on a Roman cross, dying in front of his mother. The one and only Son from the Father gave grace to sinners through his self-sacrifice, and he showed us the truth that salvation is found only in him. And the prophets told us that his work was to bring the nations to himself. Revelation chapter 5, verse 12, gives us the words of a song that describe the glory of the one and only Son from the Father. A song sung around the throne of God in heaven, and the words go like this, the Lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. There's the glory of Christ that we observe. Now here's where you might say, I, mean, I, I wish I saw what John the Apostle saw, 
so I could have the same experience he did. I wish I could have seen what he saw so I could say what he said. Well, anytime you sit with your Bible open and you look at the life of Jesus and you take in the words of Jesus, you are still observing glory. We are not people who are just living off of stories from the past. We are people who have a here and now experience with the risen King of glory. And in our interactions with Him, through His Word, through prayer, through devotion, through our service, we still see and observe glory and are impacted by it. That's His gift to us at the incarnation is the gift of glory observed. There's a second gift described here in this passage. And that second gift is the gift of grace received. So first, John has told us we observed His glory. He took on flesh. We observed it. We see that. Second, it's the gift of grace received. We have all received grace after grace from His fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the Word took on flesh, and we received. Here's the gift that comes from His incarnation. What do we receive in verse 16? It's grace, but it's not just a singular grace. It's not just one moment of grace. It is grace after grace, a continual grace, not grace with the shelf life. It's a grace that's never ceasing. It's grace with an unlimited supply. It's grace after grace for people of sin after sin. And it's vital for us to really consider different types of grace that come from God. Because there are differentiations to be made. You, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you, you might think to yourself, I'm not, I'm not really someone who knows the grace of God. You might be surprised. There's any number of things we could highlight here when it comes to grace. Let me just show you real quick three simple types of grace we talk about when we're talking about the grace of God. One is called common grace. Common grace is that grace that God gives to all people, whether they acknowledge Him or not, whether they know Him or not. Do you have breath in your lungs? Uh, are your eyes blinking? Is your heart beating? Do you, it, are you alive today? Do you have food in your belly and clothes on your back? These, these common graces are gifts from God. They don't exist in the world somewhere separate from God. Every good thing, every kindness, every protection from Him is a gift of His common grace to all people who bear His image, made in His likeness, and who are known by Him. But common grace is different from saving grace. Saving grace is the grace that rescues us from our sin when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Common grace does not save us from sin. Common grace gives us a tree to look at and be amazed by, or stars that may capture our awe. But that common grace does not save our souls from judgment. It is a saving grace, a special grace from God, that we would hear the gospel and believe, put our faith in Jesus Christ, and be rescued from our sin. Another type of grace is a sanctifying grace. For those who have known the saving grace of God, sanctifying grace is that grace that makes us holier and holier, more and more like the Christ we follow, the God we belong to. And so all of this grace has a source. Where does all of that grace come from? It comes from the one who took on flesh. John 6, verse 16 here says that grace comes from Christ's fullness. 
the fullness from which He created the universe, the fullness from which He spun galaxies into motion, uh, the fullness of Him that invented Saturn, the fullness that gave you freckles, that fullness of God, this power, might, love, compassion, all that He is, that's the source of this grace that He pours out on His people. Now, this is where one of John's original readers might have pushed back and said, why do we need grace from Jesus when we have the law of Moses and we have grace from God in the law of Moses? And that statement is partially correct. There is a grace from God in the law that he gave to his people through Moses. There is a grace there, but it's a grace of a different sort. You see, the law of Moses was a grace from God in that it reveals how sinful people truly are. The mistake so many people make when they think about the law of God is they think, well, I'll achieve this. I'll live by this law, do the best I can, and if I'm more good than bad, then God's going to do well to me. Or not even just do more good than bad. I just know fundamentally I'm a good person, and so I'll keep the law, and then me and God will be okay. But what the law shows us is that we cannot keep it. We cannot do more good than bad, no matter how highly we think of ourselves or how highly others might think of us. What the law of Moses reveals is that we are lawbreakers. That law is not bad. We've used it improperly. That's the bad part of it. The law is not bad. Moses isn't bad. John isn't trash-talking Moses here as if he's got a beef with Moses and you guys, you shouldn't think so high of Moses. That's not what's happening. He's just saying, look, you're not understanding. The law was given as a grace from God to point us to the grace we need to be rescued from all of our law-breaking. The law is a shadow of a salvation to come and all those shadows are stripped away when the Word took on flesh and stood among us. That's where our salvation comes from. So the law is given through Moses, but grace and truth, that comes through Jesus Christ. All of his fullness, all of his power, all of his position to deliver to our sin-sick souls grace and truth. It's an amazing thing when power is applied to grace and truth. There's a story about uh, the old New York mayor, Fiorello LaGuardia. I don't know if this story is true. It sounds way too good to be true but it's the stuff that sermon illustrations are made of. So, uh, LaGuardia, loved by the people of New York, um, and he, one night, the story is that one night, he's just out mixing with people, slips into a night court session, and decides he's gonna play judge for a little bit. I guess you can do that when you're the mayor. You just be like, I'm gonna be judge for a while. Your Honor, you take a break, and I'm gonna jump in here. So the story is that LaGuardia jumps on the bench and uh, begins to hear, you know, these little petty cases. And one of them involves a grandmother who had stolen $10, or not $10, she had stolen some bread for her family, and the store owner was pressing charges. And the woman explained herself to the mayor. She said, uh, look, I'm, I care for my daughter and her two kids. My daughter is very sick. Uh, there's... All of our income has dried up. I just needed bread to help us get through. Uh, and LaGuardia asks the shop owner, hey, you hear her story. You don't have to press charges. And the store owner said, I know, I feel bad, I hate this, but 
we live in a rough neighborhood. And if she's allowed to steal, then everyone else is going to be allowed to steal. And so she has to be made an example of so that other people will take things seriously. I'm glad to help, but we just can't deal with, with theft. And so LaGuardia knew that his hands were tied. It's clear she's admitted wrongdoing. She's broken the law. There's a fine to be levied. And so LaGuardia said, all right, I've got no choice but to rule in favor of the shop owner. And so you're found guilty of theft. It, it, it's a $10 fine for a crime of this degree. And the story is that as he's announcing this penalty, he's pulling out his wallet and he takes out a $10 bill and he dropped it in his hat that was laying on the bench in front of him. And then he said, furthermore, uh, here's the payment for the fine. And furthermore, uh, bailiff, I'm going to fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents apiece for letting a starving grandmother not have food to eat and to give to her family. And so the bailiff took the hat and went around into all those who were guilty of petty crimes and the police officers who were there to testify in front of them took 50 cents, even from the shop owner who had lost the bread, so to speak. Uh, and this paper the next day reported that uh, the woman was handed $47.50 and LaGuardia got uh, a standing ovation in the courtroom at this act of generosity on his part. It's a great story. When you look at LaGuardia, you see a small picture of what it looks like when power gives grace. But when we look at Jesus, we see what it's like when omnipotence gives grace. That's a beauty of a different sort. Absolutely incredible. Grace after grace given to you out of his fullness. He knows your sorrow and your fears, your disappointments, your failures, but you are precious to him. Out of his fullness, he rescues you and restores you with his abundant grace. And that's beautiful. What does the incarnation give to us? Well, a gift of glory observed and God, uh, excuse me, glory observed and grace received. And the third and final gift is the gift of God revealed. It's the gift of God revealed. Verse 18, John gives us this final line to this paragraph. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side. He has revealed Him. So John ends this section by making it absolutely clear to all of us that when we see Jesus, we have seen God. He has revealed Him. Or, or to clarify, the Son has revealed the Father. The words and actions of Jesus are the words and actions of God. Now, that word revealed is a rare one in the Bible. It's only used six times in the Scriptures. And it carries the idea that the whole story has now been told. You remember Paul Harvey, how he used to sign off, now you know the rest of the story? That's the sense here. It's, it's been revealed. This is the end of the story, so to speak, that when Christ took on flesh, God is revealed, made known to us. Now we see, we understand the story that was told by prophets of old. It's coming to fruition in the person of Christ who has taken on flesh. That story involves our redemption. The purpose behind all of this work is so that you and I would be made right in our relationship with God through faith in the Son that came from Him. So to see Jesus is to see the Father. To hear Him is to hear the Father. To 
trust Him is to trust the Father. To be saved by Him is to be saved by the Father. The writer of Hebrews described Jesus this way, one little line with atomic power. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of His nature, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. To see the Son is to see the Father. I shared this story a few Christmases ago, and uh, it's worth sharing again today because you've slept since then, and maybe you've forgotten it. But the story is of a, a Catholic priest in the 1800s. His name was Damien de Wuster, and he was from Finland. And in 1873, he was sent to Hawaii as a missionary. And arriving in Hawaii, he learned of a leper colony on Molokai, and uh, it all the lepers were sent to that place, and there they were just left to die. Horrible way to handle communicable diseases. Uh, but someone had to care for those people, and Father Damien said, I'll do it. And so he took this assignment to go to Molokai. Uh, he was asked, how long are you going to be there? He said, I'll, I'll be there as long as my service is required. And when he landed in Molokai, what he found was just awful. I mean, it's not just that people were diseased and, and sick. Um, he found just the worst of worst of human character on display. In this lawless place and hopeless place, horrific things were happening to innocent people. And so he shows up in Molokai, and immediately his presence was impactful. He lived among the 700 lepers there, uh, and he cared for them by giving medical care, uh, by building a church, by building homes. He himself built about 600 coffins. Uh, he performed all of his priestly duties for them. He was there to care for the people. Whenever he would host uh, a church service, he, it was said that he would greet the crowd this way. He would stand in front of the lepers and he would say to them, my dear brethren, but on one morning in 1885, he stood in front of them and he said, my fellow lepers. He himself contracted leprosy. And uh, after 16 years of service on Molokai, uh, he died from complications from his leprosy. It was out of his love that he lived a humble life among these people and laid down his life for their good that they would see and know God. And in order for them to know God, to be able to answer the question, who is God, what is He like? He had to become like the people He was sent to serve. He did so uh, by His contraction of leprosy. It's an incredible thing for a priest like Father Damien to become a leper. For sure, not willfully. He didn't go in search of leprosy. He just knew that, that would be the cost of His service. So it's an incredible thing that He would go and serve and contract leprosy, but it's beyond amazing for us to consider that the Word took on flesh, and He revealed the Father to us. We know what God is like because the Son came and laid down His life for us. There we see God revealed. That's a gift to us that we would see and understand and know who the Father is. So the incarnation of Christ comes with gifts. It's the gift of glory observed, the gift of grace received, the gift of God revealed. 
John reminds us that Jesus is far more than a man. He's God become man. He is grace in human form. And so then, what are we to do with all of this? Gifts have purpose. What's the purpose of these gifts that come to us from the incarnation of Christ? Well, I think this is where the Apostle Paul can help us. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul has a birth narrative of his own sort. And you may be familiar with that passage of Scripture where he describes the utter and total condescension of Christ to us. Uh, He uses these words. He says, Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. That's the language of incarnation. What does Paul do with the incarnation of Christ when he considers that he set aside his heavenly glory and position? He divested himself of these things to come and take on flesh and to go to the cross on our behalf. What does Paul do with all of that? Just a little bit later in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, My goal is to know him. My goal is to know him the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. When Paul considered the incarnation of Christ, he said, I want to know him. And that's a fitting response for us today, having read John 1, 14 through 18, that we would get to the end of this section and we would say, I want to know him. I want to know the one who is glory observed, who gives grace, the one who reveals the Father. I want to know him. I want to know him as what a person would say when they're ready to make Jesus the Lord of their life. And that might be you this morning. Perhaps God has been invading your mind, your heart in a number of ways and conversations and thoughts and all of this so that you would turn from your sin and turn to him. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and be rescued from your sin and made a child of God forever and ever. That starts with saying, I I want to know him. I want my life to be rescued by him. And if you would turn from your sin and turn to Christ today who died in your place and rose from the dead, you'll be rescued, you'll be saved. Saving grace will be given to you out of the fullness of his person. I want to know you is what a follower of Jesus says, I think every day, right? I'm not sure there's a day when I'd want to wake up and say, I could do without knowing him, or I'll take off this day from knowing him. I think that's what gets us out of bed every morning is to say, this, this is the day God's made. He's given it to me. I want to know him. I want to know the one who laid down his life for me. In all of our relationships, knowing Christ motivates humility. In our character, knowing Christ produces holiness. Uh, In our lives, knowing Christ makes us more like him and brings people to salvation through the message of his grace and truth. The more we look at Jesus, the more we will want to know him, and the more he makes himself known to us. That's the purpose of this gift. The Word took on flesh so that we would know Him. The Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. And to this beautiful truth, you and I respond with the rest of the angels. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for so great a salvation as this. 
This is your plan from the beginning, the story told by the prophets and anticipated by your people. We've failed at keeping the law, uh, our sinless perfection long out the window, and we're in need of a rescue that comes only from you. And that's been your plan from the very beginning before the, the first word of creation was spoken. You knew what it would cost you. You knew what our salvation would require. So we praise you, knowing that when you said, let there be light, you knew that the word would take on flesh. To you, Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God, who took on flesh and gives grace and truth out of your fullness, we praise your name. And we thank you for this salvation that you have won through us, through the, for us through the gift of yourself at the cross, your death and resurrection, assuring that all those who put their faith in you will be saved. I'm grateful that that's a testimony of so many of my brothers and sisters in here. I pray that that testimony would be born anew, even today, in the heart of the one who would make you the Lord of their life. Thank you for this salvation. Thank you for the gifts you have given us. Now, God, help us as we walk day by day to grow in the knowledge of you, that we would not just be recipients of grace and truth, but that we would be sharers of that grace and truth as we bring all the people we know around the throne for the sake of your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.